Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Lisa Ornstein. We recorded this a few weeks ago at her home in Olympia during the Oli Old Time Gathering. This episode is brought to you in part by Burns Violins in Tacoma, Washington. Mike Burns, former guest of the show, has over a decade of experience with new instrument making and sales, repair, and restoration of violin family instruments. He confidently optimizes setups so that your instrument sounds the best it is capable of and is comfortable for fiddlers, classical soloists, and orchestra players alike. I can verify this as he just set mine up recently and it sounds and feels good now. (laughs) He has worked on and examined violins of all levels from classical Italian to French and German trade instruments. Burns Violin is a one-person shop and Mike's repairs are well thought out and carefully executed. Burns Violins also offers sales and rentals of violins, violas, bows, cases, accessories, and offers bow rehairing. Visit Mike at his shop in Tacoma, Washington, and learn more at burnsviolins.com. Now, while Get Up in the Cool gets the occasional super cool and generous sponsor like Burns Violins, it is by and large listener-funded. Shout out to Pete Thompson for signing up to support the show on Patreon. I really cannot do it by myself, so thank you, Pete. If you haven't signed up to fund the show yet, you can follow the link in this episode's show notes on your podcast app to patreon.com slash getupinthecool, find a level that you can comfortably sustain, and of course, get some exclusive rewards like full video episodes and access to the bonus track podcast podcast, the tune archive, and online banjo workshops. Stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how to keep up with this week's guest. But first, here's my interview and jam with Lisa Ornstein. Enjoy. Thank you. 
That was fun. Lisa Ornstein, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me here in your um, home in Olympia. I'm so glad you were able to make this work. I'm glad you were able to make this work because you are a very busy person doing very important things. Oh, wow. And you play music like you're very relieved and like you're getting a lot of things out because <laughs> because you're trying to save our democracy every day and uh, I'm so grateful for you to doing that and you have me inspired to think about how, what I can do oh gosh wow well <laughs> hooray <laughs> <laughs> yes because <laughs> it's gonna take all of us um, yeah. but yeah no I I have to say um, uh, stepping back from music and becoming a basically a, a full-time uh, volunteer political organizer for the last three and a half years has only increased the pleasure and the joy mm. of having these moments of being able to make music. Um, and that was just tons of fun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I look forward to the next five tunes with you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but also talking with you. So, um, yeah, you, um, for three and a half years, that's how long you've been doing that? Yeah, since like, Basically, the morning after the presidential election in Sounds 2016. That, track, that tracks. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, searched around and then um, I sort of stumbled across the foundational document of Indivisible and mm. read it and thought, you know, I think I could do this even though I don't have any background. Mm. Um, and uh, so there's nothing like, you know, ignorance to give you confidence about what you might, you know, venturing off into the unknown. Yeah. But fortunately, um, I I had a very good friend here, have a very good friend here in town who was willing to, and felt as strongly as I did about the need to do something. And so, yeah, we started a chapter of Indivisible in her living room in 2017 mm. in January, and it's been going since then. We're now up to 727 members. All right. Which is great for a city our size. Yes. And just yeah, how doing we, what we can. That is great for yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's heartening. I find activism helps to keep me steady mm. and it keeps me um, beats the heck out of indifference or cynicism or despair. So I recommend it. It's a good tonic. That's really lovely to hear. Uh, there's often a attention in the ultimate community at least I don't know how it is mm. in uh, Quebecois which is mostly where you play these yeah. days the music that you play thank you for pulling out some of your oh. Appalachian music yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the old-time community there's there's a lot of uh, tension about mm. what the music means and what it's for and who gets to play what and all these questions and the the general split is one group of people saying this music is highly political and uh, and subversive, uh, you know, to structures and like has a lot of power. And then there's another group of people who say this music is an escape so that I don't have to think about those things. Yeah. And uh, it's really relieving to hear you say my music is more satisfying because of my like full life and engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I guess everyone has to find their own path. Yes. Um, but I, I, I certainly recommend it if people are feeling um, 
that fearful and not knowing what to do. I just find a, a, doing a small thing regularly, day after day, week after week, hmm. month after month, it's just, it's quite steadying. And then, a chance to play a tune? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or as I, I call it, my occasional outburst of music. Yes. Yeah. So, what, yeah, what did we just play? We just played Lazy Kate. Um, it's a tune from the Leake County Revelers, and uh, boy, that's one of my go-to go-to tunes. Uh, it's just got a nice, relaxed swing to it. How, how are you exposed to that tune, and the Leake County Revelers in general? Golly, mercy! I wish I could tell you, but I can't remember um, because I had this very, very long hiatus of from when I first started to play old-time music until when I came back to it. Mm. So I, I started to play old-time music when I was about 13. And um, I fell for it in the way that many people in the old-time community do, which is a real solid funk of falling in love. Yeah. Um, at 13? At 13. At 13. How did, how did that happen? Why did you fall in love with old-time music at 13? There's other drives when you're 13 to fall in love with different things that are pulling your attention. Why old-time music? Well, I had an unusual musical childhood. My mother was a Renaissance musician. She played harpsichord. Oh, wow. Um, and at first I thought everybody's mother played harpsichord. Sure, why not? You know. <laughs> But then I started to notice as I got old enough to go over to my friends' houses that that wasn't the case. Yeah. But I grew up just, um, that was my everyday music. My mother had three young children and she would practice at night. And I would hear her working out uh, the sort of the improvisatory, although somewhat um, prepared, kinds of realizations is what they called it. Realizations. Over, over figured bass. So the left hand in the Renaissance music was not very important because it was really still a melodically driven music with yeah. implications of what might be the harmony, mm. but it wasn't all spelled out the way it became as we moved into the Baroque era. So. I grew up with that kind of music, dance music mostly, and a strange assortment of instruments and their players who would yes. come through the house with lutes and sackbutts and crumb horns and stuff like that. And it was small ensemble music that was played with a lot of laughter. Um, mm. And I didn't know about my mother's concertizing very much because I was a child and didn't go to these concerts. So I thought music was something you played at home in small groups with improvisatory stuff in it and it was sociable. Um, my sister took up the violin when she was nine and she immediately demonstrated uh, a capacity to be a prodigy and she was. She was a, mm. a young prodigy and she's a, gone on to have a very successful career as a Broadway concertmaster. Wow. Um, and um, I took up the violin and something just wasn't working for me in the world of classical music. I really did not warm to the very, very hierarchical and structured and competitive nature yeah. of the music. And so I got in, so I was a slacker, let's just say, on classical music. I was like a total slacker. Um, and until... Um, 
and I, I entered high school and there was a group of guys who were one class ahead of me and they were playing this kind of, I don't know, it was like um, Doc Watson and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and you just like sort of mix of all kinds of stuff. But they wanted to play for square dances and they wanted a fiddle player. They had a guitar and a banjo player and a mandolin player and they called me up and I, I don't know even how they found me. I had an uncle who played Pete Seeger style banjo in the best collegiate tradition. Yes, and he yes. used to come over when I was a kid and play Fox went out on a chilly night and those yeah. kinds of things. And he lived in town and I called him up and I said, Uncle Norman, there's these guys who'd like me to play for square dances, but I don't know any tunes. Do you have any suggestions? And he said, well, I've got this recording. I'll bring it over. And it was uh, Lomax um, field recordings in Grayson and Carroll counties. Okay. And I dates me quite a bit. I put it on the turntable and put the needle down and I I had to go sit on the floor. I couldn't stand up. Hmm. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, feeling like you just your legs were gonna just collapse under you. But it was such it was like that's that's what my that's what I wanna that's what I want it yeah. to sound like. That's what there was something that was just so compelling about the music and the way it was being played and I actually think it was because it sounded there was a resonance and a consonance with what at least in my childish imagination I thought the violin could and should be um, based on what I had experienced as a, a very young child. Seems like you had the framework laid out for you for like hey this is music at its most sort of ideal and purest and then you started trying to play classical music and it was oppressive. Not that the music itself. No, not at all. Obviously, the music is beautiful, but the systems around them were yeah. a, a bummer. Yeah, for me, I mean, they work really well for so many people, but yes. they just did not work for me. And little did I know that behind that music was a system of learning and sharing and uh, music that was so much more. It was just what I wanted. Mm. It was that friendly hand-me-down pass it around yes. and I fell into a group I was fortunate my uncle introduced me to Pete Hoover who was a, a banjo player and a fiddle player uh, he lived about 15 blocks from my house and he had retraced Alan Lomax's southern journey after flunking out of Harvard um, in the late 1950s and early 1960s and he had a, just a trove of music and mm. He and his then-wife, Carolyn, were as kind as you could possibly imagine and kind of took me under their wing and introduced me to a lot of folks their age, which was in their mid-twenties, who were seriously interested in old-time music. And they took me to music parties in northern Ohio and West Virginia. And uh, so that's how I got introduced to music. And I was, I'm sure, insufferable, but they... <laughs> But they were really kind. Uh, insufferable in how? Oh, you know, I'm sure it's a bratty little teenager sure. um, and very self-involved. I was just yeah. Were you bratty? Um, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think I must have been. Um, yeah. I, 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 it's it's hard. I can't really, I can't really say they were. If I if if I was insufferable, they they did not tell me so they tolerated me and they did more than that they 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 were so nurturing they mentored me really um, and um, 
I don't know. I was just, I was unbelievably lucky. Hmm. So by the time, and, you know, Pete introduced me to um, musicians from for, from Virginia, um, uh, Bill Hicks. Oh, my gosh. He was like a big brother. He sent me recordings, and Dwight Dillard, and um, I, I just got to meet a whole slew of people. Uh, I thought it was normal by the time I was 16 or 17 to go visit with elders and learn music. Someone told, multiple people have told me, speaking of going to visit with elders, that you spent like extended time with Tommy Jarrell when you were a teen. I Is that was, true? Yeah, let's see. It was the summer of 1975, so I was 19. Yeah. And I had met Tommy the previous year, I think. I, I was in 74, I spent the summer in Lexington, Virginia, and of course, you know, go to Galax and... Yes. I met Tommy Gerald. I had just admired his music intensely. Um, and he took a shine to me um, as, a, as a player, um, and I asked him if I might come and visit with him, and he said yes. So um, I applied for a program called the National Endowment for the Humanities Youth Grant, mm. where they give you a pretty small amount of money, and <laughs> you went off and did something for 12 weeks. Yeah. So I spent six weeks in Vermont visiting with Louis Baudouin, mm. who I'd also met when I was 17, um, and whose music I adored. And six weeks in Mount Airy, North Carolina. I spent most of that time living in a, a flea bag motel, <laughs> hotel, it was a hotel. My next door neighbors were, I think, an eloped young couple who played the radio a lot and loved Elvis Presley, but didn't put the radio on as loud as I wish they had have. Gotcha. <laughs> and I would go in the afternoons and visit with Tommy. Yeah. And then Ray Alden and Dave Spilkey were um, visiting that summer, and they took me. I didn't have any transportation. I was on foot. Um, but they took me visiting, so I got to meet uh, Stella and Taylor Kimball and a few other folks in the area, mm. Ernest East and uh, folks who were in the community who played music with Tommy. So, yeah, that was a wonderful summer. Mm. Oof. I've heard, I've heard there, um, I, unfortunately I did not get to meet any of those people, but I've heard uh, that a lot of them, maybe Tommy especially, uh, had very big personalities. <laughs> and, huh. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not sure what, you yeah. know, can you tell me more? I'm intrigued. <laughs> it's, yeah, it seems like everyone has, yeah, some, uh, who spent time with those folks has some sort of story uh and some of them are shocking, and some yeah. of them are hilarious, and kind of everywhere in between. And some of them are awkward and funny, and oh, okay. and, and and then a lot of them are really, really sweet. Sweet, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Well, I'm I'm not going to be able to come up with uh, you know a zinger. I I, I wish you know, I'm, and maybe that maybe that's just as well. But Tommy, if I had to choose a word about how Tommy related to me, the word that would come to mind was. Courtly. Courtly. Yes. Hmm. Um, this is a new adjective I hadn't heard associated with him yet. Yeah. So this is great. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
Courtly. He, courtly. He was, um, he was friendly and welcoming. He was patient and exacting as a teacher. Mm. I know for a fact that he had a bottle of sugar whiskey in the house, and mm. I never saw it, and he never offered me a drink. Um, it uh. was, it was, he was decorous. Interesting. He was decorous, and I think, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe I brought that out. Mm. I'm sure I had my, I mean, some of being able to go out and visit with people is that you have to know how you're going to be able, without saying so, set some boundaries. Yes. And um, not that not that I think that there are, you know, I, I think Tommy was just a wise, wise and wonderful human being. It seems like he was very aware of the potential optics of having this young woman come and study with him for multiple weeks. Yeah, I think he was. Huh. I think in some, there was the possibility of scandalous. Sure. Um, somewhere there was a, you know, a potential for misinterpretation Absolutely. or whatever yeah. it was. And, you know, honestly, um, it's, it's a wonder that, um, it all worked out because I couldn't, you know, the only thing that was missing in my, um, uh, bag of does not belong here mm. was you know maybe antenna and purple polka dots you know I was wrong <laughs> I was like wrong everything but Tommy never made me feel that huh. and I think um, I can only surmise that he saw that I loved these tunes with absolute genuineness and that I loved the way he played and that I admired him and I thought of him as a mentor and he behaved as a mentor. Hmm. That's a, a, a better story than any kind of zinger I would have hoped for. That's really lovely. Yeah. yeah. Well, should we play a Tommy yeah, Gerald tune then? Do. And yeah. then we can go up north. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, great. All right, so how about Rochester Schottisch? Sounds good.
Oh. Rochester Shottish. Yeah. That's a new one for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ways of the World. That's another name it's called. Hmm. Yeah. So you also went up north to... Will you say his name again? Louis Baudouin. Louis Baudouin. Was the guy who, who's, whose music introduced me to French-Canadian fiddle playing. Yes. Um, I had heard a few... There were a few recordings back in the early 1970s on County. And then there was a company called Philo in Vermont that also had released a few recordings of, of Franco-American um, musicians and music from Quebec. The company Philo, which is long gone, uh, made recordings of some really rather remarkable musicians from Quebec. Hmm. Um, but Louis was the first person that I got to meet, you know, the first fiddle player. Um, and uh, he and his family were just just as kind as they could be. And uh, he had five daughters, and none of them played fiddle. And so I sort of was like a adopted sixth mm. daughter. Um, and I would get on the Greyhound bus and go from Ohio, where I was in college, and I'd, any chance I could, if I could, had enough money, I would go up and I'd visit with, mm. with Louis Baudouin and his family. And then that summer in 1975, I got to spend six weeks in northern Vermont and uh, spent a lot of time at the Baudouin House and also went around and visited other fiddle players in the area. Hmm. And uh, There are a lot of um, Quebecois fiddlers in northern Vermont? No, there were not. Huh. Um, it's interesting. That's why Louis Baudouin stood out so much. Yeah. Um, there were a few. Wilfred Guillette um, comes to mind. Um, oh. I can see him and I can't summon up his name, but most of the fiddle players in that area, many of them had French-Canadian names. Many of them had grown up maybe with uncles or grandparents or parents who played that music. But what was popular in Vermont was not French-Canadian music. And in fact, um, in, for a very long time, there was a, a great deal of um, prejudice against huh. Franco-Americans, French-Canadians. Um, and um, they, were, you know, they were French, they were Catholic, um, they were French-speaking. Right. There was a, uh, so there, so... Um, they, were, they were foreign. They were foreign. Yeah. Um, they're, and therefore scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of scary. Sure. Um, I think a lot of that has, has dissipated um, over time. Um, but I, I don't know whether that was the factor that made, you know, people... We all have to decide as we go along in life what it is that that we want to perpetuate and um, or what attracts us. And Louis Baudouin grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, in a which was the biggest what they called Little Canada. You know, like huh. like the, it was the ethnic enclave in this factory city, uh, a river city. Um, every single 
city in New England that had a river had French-Canadian population because they were factory workers. They came down from Quebec and they were known to be very hard-working. And he was born and raised in Lowell. Um, I think there was something like 24,000 French-Canadians living in Lowell, Massachusetts at the time and they lived in a parish and it was like an urban version of a rural village of Quebec. So he grew up very immersed in his family's music and he brought it up to Lakeside, which is where the family moved in the 1930s, late 1930s, when he was 17 and he had a neighbor named Joe Danis who was a good fiddle player. I think Louis was one of those people that I call the tender of the flame in the temple, you know? It didn't matter whether there was a lot of worshipers or no worshipers, but there was something about what he grew up with that was so much a part of everything that he considered to be precious that to lay that aside mm. would have been a, a profound loss that he could not countenance. Um, and so he played these tunes and cherished them. Um, and I know people I can think, I mean, Tommy was like that yeah. about the music that he grew up with. These were the, and the guy I did ended up in Quebec doing a master's thesis on Louis, Louis Pitou Boudreau. He was just the same, just like that. Keith Corrigan, I can think of these people who, who were fortunate to be born into a moment, a sort of music rises and falls in communities, yes. and there's these apexes where there's this kind of confluence of circumstances that there's an, an, a very talented, wonderful um, music with people who are listening attentively and dancing, and it's all sort of coming together, and if you're fortunate enough, that is happening in your own family or it's happening yes. in your community. And um, these are the people I think sometimes that become those who were, they're going to hold on to that a little, a little tighter, a little longer, yeah. more lovingly because it, it's, it has such a profound effect on who they, mm. who, on uh, those memories are just indelible, indelibly marked in, for these folks. So anyway, Louis was one of those guys. Um, and so he played his music and, um, and he was sociable and he loved to play with the Northeast Fiddlers Association um, who had a kind of a Weezer Idaho rules about contests. Okay, yeah. And it, and it was a pretty, um, so all his lovely crooked French Canadian tunes, just forget that. <laughs> um, he had to learn, he didn't really play any waltzes, which was not untypical of old school Quebec fiddle players. Mm. Uh, not very many waltzes in the repertory, but he learned some so he could at least participate sociably. Yes, yes. Um, and everybody adored him. He was a charter member of the Northeast Fiddlers Association and um, participated and was just beloved. He, mm. he was, um, you know, even though his music was that he played was, was different. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, Sounds pretty special. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah, let me get into this uh, tune real quick, and then we'll... Yeah. To me, my, my music journey, and it wasn't anything that was calculated, but I was just kind of irresistibly drawn to people like Tommy. Yes. And Louis. Yeah. For, you know, without ever, there was no, no filter. It was just, I was so arrested by the beauty and the power of their playing. Hmm. 
But I do think that there is something to be said for honing a relatively small number of tunes over a whole lifetime. Yes. Um, it does something to the music. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably something I'll never do since I'm doing this show. <laughs> but I can absolutely respect it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's it's about it's also about we you know, you, you if you were born into that community or yeah. in in into a community in which that that is going to happen. Yeah. Um because if you think about Tommy's dad, how he played and how his um, how his son played, and um, and the fact that Louis Baudouin, none of his children took up fiddle. I mean, these are all these things are mm. so interesting. And anyway, here we go. Enough about that. Yeah. What's this one? This one goes like this. That's the real Saint Jean. Or real of Saint John's. Yes, real Saint John's real. Yeah, Saint John's real, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Very cool. Hmm. So is this one of the tunes that you learned from him? Or did you learn this later uh, in your master's yeah. thesis? Oh or? golly. Um that is a good question. I I'm pretty darn sure that Louis Baudouin played this tune, but the person that I actually associate this particular version with, uh, and this is a session tune, this is a big tune, you know, one of the tunes that's widely played in Quebec, yeah. many versions, and... Um, it wasn't too much of a stretch for me to figure it out on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well I... I'd appreciate to... very hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Um, yeah, uh, this, this particular version I associate actually with an accordion player, a box player, named Keith Corrigan, uh, who lived in um, a, a farming village, um, which has now be turned into a bedroom community of Quebec City, about 30, 25, 30 miles north of Quebec City, and that is the house where all the music parties used to take place. I'm pointing oh, wow. to a, 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 a oil painting over my hmm. in in my kitchen here. Um, it was called Caesar's Palace. It's got a a vibrant red roof. It does. It was a tin it's, red roof. It's tin. <laughs> yeah, it was a Lovely. tin roof, and with the the kind of curved slope. Uh, that is a classic style of, of, of French Canadian architecture. 
and Caesar's Palace. It's Caesar's quite, Palace. Quite the name. <laughs> it, it is. It was. It had been in this village. Um, it belonged to the Smith family, um, and they loved music. In this was back in the early 1900s, and uh, Keith Corgan's father, Pat, who lived just down the road from that house, and who played fiddle, was a frequent visitor there, and played a lot of music there. But then the Smith family left, they left Valcartier, and the house kind of came down in the world, and when Leonard Thompson bought the house sometime in, I think, the 1970s, the previous occupants had been chickens, mm. so you can imagine what the state of the house was. And But Leonard, who was a bachelor, and who went out with Pat's daughter, okay. Barbara, but they, of course, could never marry because she was Catholic and he was Protestant. There you go. Wouldn't want that. <laughs> Wouldn't want that. But they had a wonderful, feisty relationship for mm. years and years and years. And he bought that house just for house parties because Leonard yeah. was incredibly sociable and loved dancing and music and making your own fun. Mm. And uh, he'd go out on the weekends and be shoveling out the chicken manure and you know trying to fix it up. It was a right mess. And of course, this is out in the countryside where people will take you down a peg if they can. And so some neighbor came by and said, that's a real palace you got yourself there, Leonard. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, the next week when he went back to keep working on it, someone had nailed a little sign on the side that said Caesar's Palace, and that was the name that yeah. stuck. So was it ironic then? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely ironic. Okay. Totally ironic. It was just to, you know, but he he ended up, he took all the, he took all the walls that weren't um, retaining walls out so that the, whole downstairs was one big room yeah. and then he rescued every orphan sofa off of the porches <laughs> in Valcartier and he had this pr and his frugality was legendary everything had been donated so there's this larger than life size color photograph of Bridget Bardot uh, sort of a chest shot wearing nothing but flowers that was one of the items and all those yeah. Anatomical ashtrays, if you know what I mean. You okay. know, there were quite a lot of those. And just anything that was there. But there was a musician's corner. Yeah. And a beautiful Lille wood stove. And they would have what they call a do. A do was like a, 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 some, a kitchen junket or a, you know, a house party. They'd have house parties there at Caesar's Palace. Yeah. Barbara would call you up and say, there's going to be a do at the palace. <laughs> Don't want to miss that. It was great. It was, they danced, they danced the quadrilles, they played music and... That sounds incredible. That sounds like lifetime memory making oh. all in that little building. It's yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. I, mm. I, again, I mean, that was a, an amazing community. Um, and that's where I learned this particular version of that tune. Yeah. Glad I asked. <laughs> Very good. So you have a, uh, a Pete Sutherland tune that you want to play next. Yeah. How do you know Pete Sutherland? Okay, well, I met Pete Sutherland um, when I went to visit with Louis Baudouin in Vermont. Um, I think I was, I think I was 18 maybe. I think it was my first year of college, and I went up to visit with the Bowdwins, yeah. took the Greyhound bus, and Louis said, oh, well, I just asked him, I said, are there any young people who play this kind of music? Yes. 
And he said, well, not very many. He said, but I do know somebody who you ought to meet. It's Pete Sutherland. Mm. So I did meet Pete, and yeah. we're, we've been friends ever since. Hmm. I had assumed, I didn't know for sure if he was from Vermont. Oh, yeah. Originally, because I know that he's, that's the main place he's associated with now. But, yeah. Not only is Pete um, from Vermont, but he's got really deep roots hmm. in Vermont. He's, a, hmm. he's, a, he's the real deal, um, a, a Vermonter of many generations. And uh, if you get a chance to hear, he's done some recordings and written some, just penned some amazing songs about things about living in Vermont and Vermont experiences. I totally recommend them. Yeah. He's such a great songsmith. Anyway, we played many of the Louis Baudouin tune and yes. also some old-time tunes together over the years. Um, and one of the tunes that I love of, is a composition of Pete called the Fruit Fly Blues. Yeah. So we're just going to go for it? Fruit Fly Blues? Fruit Fly Blues. Uh, I'm glad for it. Yeah, well, well <laughs> okay, so we have one tune left, but before we go, mm -hmm. you have some recorded works. 
mostly yeah. mostly Quebecois music, correct? Yeah. Yes. And yeah. but that's why I wanted to make sure that we at least did one. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've got a. Let's see. Most of these. Um, there's uh they're with a trio that I've played with for 30 years now, um, called Le Bruit Court dans la Ville, which means the buzz around town. It's kind of a loose translation. André Marchand and Normand Miron, and the first one is eponymous. It's Le Bruit Court dans la Ville. Mm. And the second one is called Les Vins qui Vintent, which means the winds that whirl. And the third one, which we did last year, is called Trente Ans Déjà, 30 Years Already. So, <laughs> and those are, ah, oh, golly, I, I don't know, political activism is just put the axe on every little bit of promo, which was never very big that I was doing. Yes. I don't even know if they're available. They were available on CD Baby, but I'm, anyway. So perhaps they'll at least be available in download via CD Baby? Well. Or just CDs? <clears throat> I don't. I'll tell you what, I'll check, okay. and then if they're there, I will link them. <laughs> okay, thanks yeah. so much. I'm not even sure what's yeah. left. I just haven't been on the case. Well, here, here's something. Maybe yeah. something to, that you would be more enthusiastic about promoting would be, yeah. uh, well, it's just like a simple way that people uh, can get involved politically. Oh, well, if you... Especially you if you're feeling as despaired as, as I am okay. <laughs> and, and just want something to feel like I'm do, doing something. Doing something? <laughs> yeah. One of the easiest things you can do is just get in touch with Vote Forward. Okay. And uh, they will um, give you training on how to write letters to prospective voters to encourage them to vote. Mm. And that could not be more important this year. Yeah. So that would be a super easy thing to do. And if you want to do boots on the ground, uh, work uh, registering voters or, or canvassing for campaigns, um, if you're progressively motivated, then an organization uh, that you could get in touch with is Swing Left. And that's what they do. So those would be two things. And thanks for asking. Yeah. Vote forward. Vote forward. And swing left. And swing left. Great. Yep. I'll put links to that as well. So Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's just so nice of you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's your most recent work. You know, that's yeah. the thing you really should be promoting anyway. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's all, it's yeah. all connected somehow or yes. other. It's just, yeah. But I, you know, I fear if you go look on CD Baby right now, it's entirely possible that they ran out of albums, and I, I just yeah. wasn't enough of a priority. So, <laughs> alas, so I apologize. If anybody does want to get any of that music, they can always just. I do have a website oh, that's great. semi-current, and they can send me an email, okay. and chances are I'll respond. So, ah, wonderful. Wish great. I could do better than that. Okay. So th this last tune you wrote for. We were talking earlier about um, about you maybe or maybe not being a, a bratty teenager. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we know we know some teenagers uh, in common now. Me recently yes. uh, that are uh, incredibly elegant and eloquent and and good at music. And you have a, a very cl uh, a much closer relationship to, to them musically. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is um, Annie and Ellie, uh, who appeared um, with Ruby yes. on your most, was it your most recent show? Uh, it's or, within the last three or four. Within yeah. the last three Depending or four. Depending on when this comes out. <laughs> right. Um, 
as um, the they're, they're two of the three <laughs> members of the Sassafras Sisters, yeah. and both of them are uh, accomplished fiddle players, and um, it's been my joy mm. to um, be giving them lessons for the last couple of years. And um, they are, as you know, incredibly quick studies. Yes. And, um, and I'm a little rusty on my old time because of the work that I'm doing. Um, and, and so I was teaching calico tunes. Um, those are tunes with fiddle tuned A, E, A, C sharp. And um, boy, I'll tell you, they were just, uh, Annie was just picking them up as quick as I could dish them out. <laughs> and she was on her way over for a lesson. And we, you know, I said, okay, well, we'll do some more calico tunes. And then I thought, Oh no, <laughs> I don't think I know any more calico tunes that are right, you know, just sort of fresh in my memory. And then, um, and so I made one up. Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just was thinking about um, Annie and Ellie um, and just the, their, um, the spirit that they bring to the music. And mm. so I made up this tune and um, it's called Annie and Ellie. So there it is. Thanks so much, Lisa, for giving me a little bit of your time and everyone listening. And yeah, it was a delight to play with you and talk with you. Oh, I feel the same way. Thanks, Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you.
buy Lisa's albums at her band's website. I can't say her band name because it's so French, but there's a link in the show notes. You can also visit her website at lisaornstein.com. And if you want people to vote, I also linked Vote Forward and Swing Left. I think I'm going to write some letters and, you know, practice some optimism. Just in case it works. You can support Get Up In The Cool at patreon.com slash getupinthecool, and you can buy a t-shirt or a bag or phone case or sticker by following the link in this episode's show notes. Thanks again to Mike Burns of Burns Violins for sponsoring this episode. Visit burnsviolins.com for more info. Make sure to like and follow Get Up In The Cool on Facebook so you can see the video I posted from this episode and share it with the world. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up In The Cool.